Money FM 89.3, best of workday afternoon. Welcome into the Health Suites on Money FM 89.3. I'm Melissa Hyak and joining me on the line today is Dr. Behran Ali Khan, Medical Director at the National Kidney Foundation. Dr. Behran, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, first I think that's uh, sort of put us all on the same sort of understanding, right? How prevalent is chronic kidney disease in Singapore? So um, officially, the Singapore Renal Registry tracks uh, the end-stage renal disease numbers. So those are kidney failure numbers. But unofficially, we have estimates of how many patients uh, may have chronic kidney disease in Singapore. And it kind of follows the trends of diabetes and high blood pressure because those are the two most common conditions causing chronic kidney disease. So our current uh, estimates are about 14 to 15% of the entire population um, at, the, at this time. That's a fairly high number. We're talking about, what, a few hundred thousand, right? Yes, correct. And is every such patient on dialysis? No, so only uh, chronic kidney disease stage 5 or what we call uh, end-stage renal disease or kidney failure are the ones uh, who may be on dialysis. Okay, so when we talk about stage 5, what kind of failing kidney function are we talking about? Can you describe it a bit? Yes, please. So these are patients who have a kidney function of less than 15% and usually when their kidney function drops below 10%, they would require some sort of dialysis or transplantation. Okay, so when we talk about um, it not doing its job, that is the kidneys are not uh, filtering the blood. Yes, that is correct. So Yes, absolutely. So kidneys are are natural filters of the body. They get rid of all the uh, toxic uh, metabolism products and also uh, waste products and extra water. So Mm -hmm. all of these things are higher in the blood if the kidneys are not working correctly. Are there other kinds of indicators that we can uh, look to to understand what, you know, uh, a functional functional performance, right, of, of 15% 15% is like for a patient? Because when you talk about that, it's for me, you know, I have no grasp of nothing concrete to, uh, to understand it with. Sure, sure. So yes, uh, let me just uh, go over uh, that some of the symptoms of kidney failure may be uh, present at the very late stage. So we encourage patients that they should have annual checkups because early kind of kidney disease may be completely silent. Mm. So uh, usually uh, the best way to do the screening test to find out how the kidney is working is by a blood and a urine test okay. and with, the, with them we can very accurately estimate uh, what is the kidney function. Okay, but you say um, they are silent, right? Uh, or, or that stage can sometimes be silent but when it's not so silent, right? How, yes. how do the symptoms present themselves? What kind of symptoms can we see? Sure, so they can be quite varied uh, from having some swelling in your feet due to uh, excess water in the body, feeling tired and weak, having headaches, some mm. shortness of breath, chest pain or headache. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, you can have a variety of symptoms. Mm-hmm. And these yes. symptoms come and go? Or... Yes, uh, yes, they can be periodic and come and go. Okay, so now let's look at this particular um, treatment that, you know, that I understand is supposed to be gentler, right, than the conventional dialysis treatments out there, something called peritoneal dialysis. Yes. Why, if it's better, well, I assume it's better because it's gentler on the body, right? Why is the take-up rate lower? Okay, so uh, peritoneal dialysis, uh, maybe if you allow me, I can just give a brief overview of what it is. So it's what we uh, commonly refer to as water dialysis in our communities. It is done on a daily basis, just like our natural kidneys work all day, every day. Um, And and it is uh, different from other kinds of dialysis like hemodialysis or what we refer to as blood dialysis uh, Mm. commonly, uh, where a patient has to go to a dialysis center three times a week for about four hours each time. But water dialysis 
this can be done in the comfort of your own home on a flexible schedule uh, and can be done at night. So most of the day is free to carry out your usual activities. So why is it uh, uptake low? It is what we call multifactorial, meaning mm-hmm. there are many factors to it. Mm-hmm. First factor is uh, education and awareness. So, so this uh, radio interview that you're doing is kind of educating <laughs> right. our, our, right. our uh, audience on uh, that peritoneal dialysis is an option for them. Uh, the second thing is uh, just a cultural uh, background, some myths and facts which may be incorrect about peritoneal dialysis in the minds of our uh, patients. So I, it, it, we encourage them to talk about different options for dialysis with their uh, physicians and also the dialysis team. And the third thing are, of course, on a systemic level, uh, the funding for it and the logistical support for it. And recently, uh, organizations like NKF are doing a much better job of supporting patients in the community to increase the uptake rate. Mm-hmm. Let's try and, and, and look at the three key areas that you talked about, um, you know, uh, that are getting in the way of people, you know, getting uh, this treatment, right? Education and awareness. I would think that when a patient is uh, prescribed with, uh, you know, uh, the need for dialysis, right, the medical staff would present them with the different options. Correct. That is true. So, so yes. So, but the thing is that um, many times patients may have some preconceived notions about dialysis. So, when these options are given to the patients, they may very quickly move towards choosing uh, hemodialysis or blood dialysis. So that leaves less of a room for their physician and the dialysis team to even go into the details of water dialysis. But recently, there are programs for dialysis counseling where uh, it is almost mandated that patients get a full-fledged non of these things before they choose the, the dialysis modality. Mm. So it would sound to me, um, and, and again, if this is, you know, regardless of how wonderfully I think our, our general medical uh, population is doing to serve the community, is that the medical staff actually need to be educated better on how to handle and present options to patients. So I think it's a work in progress. I think uh, public hospitals and the dialysis teams have made a lot of effort on this. There are dedicated dialysis counselors which are now available to counsel the patients in addition to the nephrologists who may have a limited amount of time during clinic visits to go into details of having mm. like a one-hour session with the patient. Mm. So I think these resources are available. But I think the onus is also on having empowerment about your own health condition. So we encourage patients to and their family members to actively bring up this uh, issue about being educated about the different options with their uh, dialysis, with their healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. But I get feedback from some of my friends in the profession, right, that sometimes they get a little frustrated because, you know, you have patients or, or people, right, who don't really know very much about, you know, uh, medical issues, medical background. We read one article or we hear one radio program and we go to our doctor and we start arguing with the doctor about what the best option should be for us. So, it's a bit of a, you know, how would you say, difficult balance to strike, isn't it? Between Absolutely. getting yourself yes. educated and, and trying to tell the doctor how to do his job or the, or the nurse. Yes, I think it's, it's, a, it's a fine balance, but I think most of the physicians would be quite appreciative if uh, a patient is taking ownership of their medical condition and would like to get more information. I think mm-hmm. that is encouraged from our end as well, yes. Mm-hmm. But what about, um, you talked about um, some financial uh, considerations 
is is peritoneal dialysis is a lot more expensive to have? Uh, uh, no, it isn't. Um, I think it, uh, it that one is more of a systemic and a government level discussion. But uh, as things stand right now, uh, with the current subsidies and different kind of support available from organizations, hemodialysis and peritoneal dialysis are very much comparable as far as the price is concerned. It's quite comparable, but is it slightly higher? Um, I would say that with the right amount of means testing and the support that is available mm. uh, with discussions with their social workers at the hospital, um, at the end of the day, patients should not be feeling much of a difference between the, uh, any kind of dialysis. Right, treatment. right. And the insurance companies are all, or at least the policies, the insurance coverage that we commonly get right, in Singapore for medical, um, they would cover also this particular type of dialysis. Yes, the support is all factored into with insurances and other kind of supports that are available. Okay, okay. And you were, and you mentioned also some cultural myths. What are we talking about? What kind of cultural uh, misconceptions? Yes. So um, traditionally what has happened in Singapore has been that uh, we have uh, chosen patients who are more bed-bound and are unable to come out and use public transportation mm. to go to dialysis mm. centers to be placed on peritoneal dialysis mm. or water dialysis. So that, uh, that kind of a selection bias of putting a sicker or more debilitated patients on uh, peritoneal dialysis may leave some kind of a observation in patients' minds or the community's minds that mm. these are more sicker patients uh, their outcomes are worse. Mm. But in, in, in fact, if you look at the scientific data and if you look at all the global outcomes, mm. uh, peritoneal dialysis is actually very much comparable as far as its efficiency and, and its outcomes are concerned uh, to other kinds of dialysis. In mm. fact, in the first two years of life, peritoneal dialysis actually does much better than hemodialysis because it's much more gentler on the body mm. and it preserves whatever little kidney function that you have left in your body to last longer. So whatever kidney function that you may have, if, as long as it is preserved and kept going on for a longer period of time, mm. those kind of uh, dialysis patients always do better than their, uh, than their peers. So it's a once-a-day treatment that you administer yourself, or you can administer yourself at home? Yes, correct. And how long for each session that you need to put in? So it depends on the patient's body mass. So if, mm. they're, if they're a bigger patient, they may require longer hours. But in general, you can do it in about eight hours at night. So all of us have to sleep at night and yeah. it's quite convenient that, you know, uh, over eight hours we can do most of our peritoneal dialysis needs. Oh, so you can actually just, you know, okay, how is it administered to, to the self? Yeah, so there's a, there's a tube that we place in the belly of the patient right. and there's a special machine that very gently pumps in a special kind of fluid into the belly which sits there and absorbs all the blood toxins and waste products and excess water and then the, and then the machine will drain it out and these kind of cycles Cycles will continue depending on what prescription mm. the doctor has given to mm, the patient. Mm. And over a period of about eight hours, four or five exchanges can be done, which will take care of majority of the peritoneal dialysis oh. needs. Can a person say, um, I, I, I know you, you mentioned that because of the number of hours that may be needed, eight hours, um, you know, you could actually do it while you're sleeping, right? But sometimes maybe the sleep arrangements may just not be um, conducive for that. Can a person actually be uh, undergoing 
the dialysis as they are working, for example, at home. Yes, absolutely. And having, so can they eat while they're being, you know? Sure. Treated? Yeah. So there's quite a bit of flexibility in the schedule that you can have. You can uh, kind of have some of these uh, cycles done during the day, if you like. You can have uh, lesser time during the night. Uh, there is no restriction on eating or drinking. Uh, you can also interrupt your sessions if you're connected to a machine, go use the toilet, uh, go to the kitchen, have a snack, come back, reconnect yourself. So I think in, in that way it's quite convenient. It's uh, good for patients who are younger, have jobs, want to support themselves and their families and have minimal disruption to their quality of life and their schedules. Wow. Actually, you know, based on what you've described, it it doesn't sound like there's any reason to not want to take up this form of treatment. Sure. So uh, as we have seen medically, a majority of the patients are eligible uh, on on medical grounds to be placed on peritoneal dialysis. So I think uh, this is definitely a treatment that uh, we would encourage kidney failure patients and the ones who are actually even on uh, blood dialysis to take up with their uh, kidney specialist and see if they would be candidates to be placed on peritoneal dialysis. And who are the ones who are not eligible? So uh, there are certain conditions where, uh, medically speaking, uh, the belly is not very conducive to doing this kind of dialysis. So for those patients which are actually a very small minority, uh, we would probably not do this. What do you mean the belly is not conducive for this sort of treatment? Sure. So if they have like uh, what we call hernias, where there's like uh, out-pocketing of the abdominal wall, weakness in the abdominal wall, or if they've had many infections or scarring Mm. in the belly due to Mm. many surgeries, those kind of conditions would not require, uh, would not allow patients to do peritoneal dialysis well. Mm. Uh, but uh, again, uh, these are very small minority of patients. Mm. And, and let's look at some practical considerations, right? How big is that machine? Sure, yes. Yeah, so the machine is actually quite small, uh, the size of a small printer, office printer. It can sit um, on your bedside table. Um, and uh, well, It's like a desktop printer size. Absolutely, yes. Oh, okay, please con- uh, please continue. And, and you need to hook it up to, obviously, you know, the uh, electrical point, right? What about electricity consumption? Very minimal. Uh, We have not had any kind of uh, complaints regarding uh, increased electricity bills by using a peritoneal dialysis machine at home. Okay. And this machine, um, is it bought? uh, Would it have to be bought by the patient or would it be leased from, um, I don't know, the different medical institutions? Yes. So uh, the patient typically does not have to buy the machine. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is provided by the vendor or or the peritoneal dialysis program from the hospital. It is factored into their overall dialysis treatment. So in a, in a way, you can say that it is leased. Okay, and, and charges, uh, what are we looking at? I know you say it's comparable to traditional, you know, the hemo uh, type of dialysis, right? But give us an idea of the ballpark figure on a daily rate, for example. Yes, so head-to-head comparison of peritoneal dialysis and blood dialysis, which is hemodialysis, is quite comparable. But there are some hidden costs which are actually favoring peritoneal dialysis. Mm-hmm. Blood dialysis patients, uh, we see typically end up going to the hospital much more frequently, Mm -hmm. uh, especially if they are dialyzing through catheters or tubes because Mm -hmm. they are prone to infection. Mm -hmm. And if they have those fistulas in their arms, those also need some intervention or ballooning or trying to keep them open uh, for the dialysis. These kind of issues are not there with peritoneal dialysis. So there's a lot of hidden costs which are saved to the healthcare system and the patient if they're on peritoneal dialysis. Okay. Okay. So we don't have a dollar figure to that, but not to worry. Talk to your... (laughs) 
medical social worker or whoever it is, and and they can possibly help you come up with uh, a sort of a payment plan, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. But maybe one last word on maintaining kidney health, doctor. What would you tell our listeners out there? Of course, the best thing is not to have you know need yes, so for dialysis. Yeah. So some take home points that I would encourage everyone to do is number one, please have regular checkups. Um, mm. uh, diabetes and high blood pressure is quite prevalent in Singapore, and uh, we need to be able to get an early diagnosis of uh, chronic kidney disease and intervene early so that the kidney disease does not progress onto kidney failure. So please see your doctors regularly, uh, get your annual checkup done, and then they will guide you on how frequently you need to do your checkup later on. The second thing would be to eat healthy and maintain a healthy lifestyle, which mm-hmm. also includes less smoking um, and uh, a regular exercise regimen. And the third thing is, if you are diagnosed with any of the chronic illnesses, such as diabetes and high blood pressure, please be very compliant to your medications and follow what mm. your doctor is doing so you don't have to see doctors like myself in, in kidney clinics. Yes. Okay. Well, Dr. Vera Ali Khan, thank you so much for your time and your patience explaining everything to, to us here. I appreciate uh, thank it. Thank you so thank much you. for the information. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Dr. Behran Ali Khan, Medical Director of the National Kidney Foundation. This is Melissa here for the Workday Afternoon and you are with Money FM 89.3. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.